Welcome to African Theological Scholarship Podcast, where scholars of African Christianity and theology discuss their research. Your host is Harvey Quiani, professor of African theology at Liverpool Hope University. Here's today's episode. Good morning, Dr. Bangura. Yes, sir. Prof. Um, Harvey Kiani, it's so nice to meet you here and to have this conversation with you. <laughs> Great to connect with you. This is really exciting for me. Yeah. Been looking okay. forward. Yeah. Uh, before we before we go any further, let me give you a chance to introduce yourself to, to, to our viewers and our listeners. Yeah. Great. Thank you. My name is Bosco Bangura. I, uh, I was born in Sierra Leone in West Africa. Um, somewhere in the 70s, <laughs> and grew up there, and studied at Furabe College, where I did my MPhil, Master of Philosophy in uh, Religious Studies, with a focus on teaching, theolo- teaching religious education in a pluralist context that was emerging from a war context, because um, um, Sierra Leone, you know, has gone through a lot of battles. In the 90s, we had a terrible 11-year-old war, and uh, that, that lasted a lot of lives. And um, incidentally, it was also during this time that I started teaching at the theological uh, college, the Evangelical College of Theology in Freetown, the capital, where I really served for 12 years as dean and then, of course, professor in African Pentecostalism and missiology generally. And then from there, I moved on to briefly to Ivory Coast, where I, I spent a few months I moved on to Ghana also. I spent there a few months before coming to Belgium in 2010 for my doctoral studies. You know, so I spent my time three years in Belgium, did my doctorate, and then worked briefly uh, as an independent researcher uh, amongst African migrant churches, you know, reflecting upon religion and migration uh, across the context of African Africans in the West. And then from there, I taught briefly at the Uganda Christian University through their uh, MA program, MA in organizational leadership. You know, I was teaching one course, culture, ethnicity, and diversity there before I moved over to South Africa to Northwest University, where I did my postdoc for three years. So that was 2015 to 2018. And in 2019, I came over to Hamburg, did graduate studies there, I did some research for six months at uh, the Missions Academy at the University of Hamburg. And then finally, I am back in my home university in Leuven at the Evangelical Theological Faculty, where I do now serve as a senior researcher in missiology. But of course, this is a joint position with the Protestant University in the Netherlands. So I work half of my time in Belgium and half of my time in Groningen, the Netherlands, on the same question. So you can imagine how much travel I have every week, you know, meetings and so on. So basically that is it. I'm married, I'm married, I'm married. We have a son, Jonathan. I'm married to one wife and we have a son, <laughs> Jonathan. And um, I also serve as an associate pastor in a migrant church in Brussels and Antwerp. It's called World Communication Ministry. I've been with them now for quite a while. So in brief, that is me. I research on African Pentecostalism mainly, but religion and African migration, and then African Pentecostalism both on the continent, as well as in the diaspora. All right. Uh, So that gives me a lot of things to work with. Um, Before we get to talking about, about your research, can I... Can I, can I just ask what what do you see happening in in African Christianity in, in mainland Europe? Well, of course, there, there, there are a whole lot of developments that are taking place um, amongst African migrants uh, connected to African Christianity. Um, I would uh, I, I may hesitate to say it's a kind of revival because you know you keep using the word again revival revival again, but. There are new developments that are taking place amongst African migrants in mainland Europe connected to their participation in faith. Okay. Europe, as we know, uh, prides itself in defending and maintaining human rights. This means that they, they tend to emphasize secularization in which religion tends to have a limited role in society. 
So the expression, the physical expression of religious symbols, the, uh, signs and so on, offends the European public. And Africans are automatically thrust in this context, in this secular context, where God seems to be absent from the public discourse, but where they need to really connect with God in ways that are reminiscent of what they were used to when they were in Africa. And so they go into migrant churches, mainly Pentecostal churches, but also uh, mainline churches, mainline Protestant churches that have also come up, uh, like the Presbyterians in Antwerp and the city of Antwerp in Brussels, and in, in, in Belgium, sorry. Uh, they, they have Ghanaian Presbyterians, Cameroonian Presbyterians who go to this church and help to revive it. So I would say, I would say that we have seen a kind of, um, a kind of, bold assertion of who Africans are in terms of their relationship to the Christian faith. And they are willing to express it in spite of the secular context uh, in which they find themselves here in Europe. So that would be my sort of small description of what I think African Christianity is. And, and how is that working out? Well, of course, this is working out in terms of the setting up of the churches that they really set up. So uh, these are churches that are founded in disused factory buildings or shops that are not used anymore. Sometimes they also buy churches that have been closed, you know, and they, 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 they walk through it. But um, specific countries demand specific uh, explanation. So let me be very specific here in Belgium. In Belgium, we have... Uh, church networks that exist. And so some of these African migrant churches that have been founded um, seek membership in these established organizations so that they can receive recognition as missionary partners who work also here in Belgium. And of course, for some time, I was also part of them. I, I was given missionary credentials through one of these religious organizations, you know, so that I, I'm able to perform in my in my in my capacity as a pastor. Um, also, some of them basically do so by going online. In fact, online now provides us with an opportunity to express themselves. So they have their programs online. And of course, given the context of the corona crisis and the church is closed, so religious services are immediately broadcasted online. And so they use these platforms to reach out to their following and to see how they can minister to them pastorally and provide answers to the questions that they have. Others would also encourage their children to take religious education courses where they are provided in public schools. Sometimes the kids, second generation or born here, will say, well, what is the point of me taking a course in religion? They will say, you have to, you must take it. But of course, in our church, we try to explain to them that you need to engage with your children to help them see the relevance of religious courses. And yeah, events are also organized when, when it was possible before Corona. So events like musical concerts and so on, visiting evangelists who come in and preach, you know, with miracles and so on. So it's, it's, it's a combination of activities that have been done, but slowly they are taking over. But of course, as these activities are done, sometimes they, meet, they, they are confronted with restrictions. For instance, noise. They say they are too noisy, they are too loud, or you cannot distribute leaflets, religious leaflets. You know, you have to seek permission from the city hall to be able to do so. You know, all of these things restrict the expression, the self-expression of their Christian identity. But however, they are trying to do so in this context. Wow. Okay. Final question before we go to your research. We are living in the context of um, what we call Black Lives Matter. Yep. At the moment. Uh, so the death of George Floyd yep. and, and, and many other things that have followed that. Is there anything happening in, in, in Belgium about this? Yes. So I've had this question asked, posed to me. <laughs> and I've had some people also respond by saying that um, um, a life for African immigrants is slightly much more at a better footing as compared to what is going on in, in the U.S., which, which I, I think I agree with uh, generally from a general perspective. We don't just hear of police killings of Africans and so on and so forth. But this does not mean, this doesn't mean 
that African migrants, particularly black African migrants, are not also exposed to some form of institutionalized racism. I will cite just a few of those. For instance, um, most of the Africans struggle to find places um, to rent, take for instance, if they want a house. Um, they will call in the phone, they will speak the language, but when they physically meet the landlord, the landlord might simply say they decline. And even though the house is left empty, but because the guy looks African, he doesn't get access to it. So the housing market tends to be slightly closed. But there may be other, other instances of, um, um, you know, latent um, segregation, latent injustices that Africans do face here. Um, for, 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 of course, because of the colonialization process between Belgium and, and, and Congo, you know, this huge continent that was colonized by, by Belgium and the king had, you know, serious human rights violations and so on and so forth. So, but, but take, take that, take that um, aside. Still, people generally tend to feel that if you apply for a job, if you apply for a house, if you want to access certain social services, your appearance makes it less likely for you to really receive those issues. And as a pastor, as a pastor working among African migrants, I, I, I hear this cry amongst my parishioners. I try to give them a positive outlook to what is going on. I try to tell them, well, probably you need to present yourself in a much more nicer way. You need to defend your integrity, you know, establish your identity amongst them, and then they will take you to the next level. You know, these servants and so on. So, I would want to say that, yes, uh, George Floyd's death is unfortunate, but it has helped to pinpoint some of the issues that African migrants face in places like Belgium that were not in the public domain, sure. but that have now been brought to the public domain so that uh, policymakers, you know, those who are responsible, can take the necessary uh, adjustment of the legal climate so that Africans can also be who they are in this context. And, and, and Belgium's history in the Congo, is, is, is that well acknowledged in, in, in where you are? Well, yes, of course, uh, there, there, is, there is indeed, uh, just closer to my university here, we have the, 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 the museum, the African Museum, it's called the African Museum. It's a huge institution that has all the artifacts from Africa and so on and so forth. And the aim was to showcase African art, culture, politics, and so on. But we know that it was also a means of perpetuating, <clears throat> excuse me, perpetuating the colonial grip that the country had on, uh, on the Congo. You know, I would say most people know about it, and particularly amongst evangelicals that I deal with at the university where I'm attached, they really deal with this past in a way, in a constructive way. How can we walk past the events that happen and try to make amends for it? You know, of course, there was a protest in Antwerp where the, the statue of King Leopold was torn down. And there are other protests in other cities, even here in Leuven. Um, the, the city street, the, the name of the street was changed from King Leopold to uh, Library Street. Uh, you know, it, it was Leopoldstraat. Now it is Library Street, the street of a library, because the main university library is actually there. <laughs> so, so all of these issues. So, in fact, the George Floyd thing make it, made it much more clear that Belgium had to confront its past in a constructive way, in an open and pluralist way. Because what is happening now here, you know, it, it, it was suppressed before the George Floyd issue, but now it has been opened up. And I think that I think that changes are bound to come. You know, changes are bound to come. And of course, my role, my role as a senior researcher in the, fact, in the, the department of um, religious studies and physiology is also to bridge this chiasm. Um, that it's not just a question of West white Europeans teaching all the rest, but that amongst us there is one African, at least one for now. I hope we will be more. <laughs> but we contribute to the discourse, you know. So that's, uh, that's the consequence of um, sure. um, the George Floyd issue. Here in the UK, uh, it's yep. very clear from, from the data that people who have been 
largely affected by coronavirus are mostly Africans and other non-white British people. Is that the case in, in Belgium? Well, I, I don't have the data per se, and so I hesitate to say what, what, um, what, sure. what the statistics are. We have had something like 10,000 or so, 10,000 people about that who have died. And I don't yet know exactly amongst those who are uh, from what uh, ethnicities and so on. So I hesitate to make any claim here. But it, it is possible. It is possible that um, um, other ethnicities, I mean, blacks, Asians, and so on, who are basically connected to the service industry, the cleaning industry, the hospitals, and so on, they may be exposed to, to the catching the disease, and therefore they may be susceptible you know, to be to die of it, you know. But I, I don't have the I don't have the data. I know that we have about ten thousand or so people who have. Um, I mean, in in the UK here, it's uh, it's it's been an issue. So the government uh, had to conduct some yeah. research and 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 release oh, yeah. the report just last week. Or okay, something. and it's clear in the report that uh, it's mostly black and other yeah. ethnic minorities yeah. who have been really yeah. hit hard. Mm. All right. Okay. Mm. Thank you so much. This is helpful. Let's talk about your research. Um, where, where did you do it? Or what did you do it on? What was your research question? Great. I, like I said, I, I started my studies in Sierra Leone at Fura Bay, did my M-field there, and then came, came over to Belgium. First of all, I did the Master, master of Theology, second master, 2005 to seven, and then I went back, continued teaching. 2010, I came to Leuven at the Evangelical Theological Faculty, the um, Theological University uh, based in Leuven. That, that, that's where I came in 2010 and started my doctoral studies in missiology with a specific uh, research um, that was there to me because at that time in 2010, the movements of um, African Pentecostals, the new Pentecostals or charismatic movement, as it was called, was a big business even before I left Sierra Leone to come and do the studies. So for three years, I was working on the, on the theme of the charismatic movement in Sierra Leone to analyze it, to analyze how it was founded and to analyze its specific approach to three issues. How does the, the new charismatic Pentecostals approach issues of African culture? How do they approach or propagate issues of prosperity gospel, and how do they also display what is called power theology? So these were the three things that I sort of put into my dissertation. And under the question, how has this charismatic movement utilized both religious aspects, cultural aspects, and social aspects to contextualize Christianity so that the message they presented resonated with people's needs in, in, in Sierra Leone back then. So the study was basically from 20, 1980 to 2010. So that was my period in which I analyzed it to develop the history, to analyze what was going on, and to see how they reacted to issues of um, 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 African culture, prosperity, gospel, and power theology. In terms of, in terms of my, my methodology, because it was basically in the field of mission studies, um, because it also had component of history, I had to do a, a collection of methodologies. For instance, I had to do a charismatic church survey. There was none existing before I started doing the research. Churches were existing, but there was no survey. So I did a survey. And this was done through my students at the Evangelical College of Theology. I gave them an assignment, and then we went to survey the old city of Freetown, and we came up with, in those days, around 400 different charismatic Pentecostal churches. I also had to do participant observation. I was present when these leaders, leaders of the five biggest churches were preaching. I, I did interviews with them, face interviews, email interviews, telephone interviews, and so on. Of course, I also access materials um, from their publications, so their sermons, their books, and so on. I access those charismatic literature to analyze specific conceptions of African theology, issues in culture, and so on. You know, and then of course I also followed them online. This was the time when Facebook started. I followed them online, and now we have YouTube and all other means and so on to see what they were saying there. And of course, this was put in the context of 
analyzing the history of the church in Sierra Leone. Because up until this point, uh, focus was only on the established denominations and nothing was done about this movement. So I, I employed this uh, collection of methodologies to really work on the, the thesis itself. And my findings, I mean, just one, one, one thing here, my findings were very interesting because it was clear that the movement was gaining grounds. It was gaining grounds, gaining followers, going into places, doing things, and so on. And the question was, their message resonated with the needs of African, of African believers. For instance, they spoke about demons in ways that are consistent with African culture. They spoke about healing, disease, deliverance. They spoke about power, prosperity, and so on, in ways that resonated with the believers who followed this movement, and in ways that were not the case before the movements were founded. So here we see clearly uh, that indeed the movement was gaining ground um, up to 20, and of course by now it's even bigger than I could even imagine. You know, so it was gaining ground because it was connecting to the felt needs of the people who were flocking into these churches. So in brief, that was my stories. And of course, this was completed in 2013. Um, I, I, the, the defense itself happened both in Leuven, but also it happened in Amsterdam, because this was a joint uh, degree um, that I had to defend in both places and so on. Can you, can you share briefly about the story of Pentecostalism in Sierra Leone? Um, yeah. and, and I'm asking that in the, in the context of one general Christianity in, in the country. But two, I would also want you to sort of reflect on, on, on just the history of Christianity in, in the country. Uh, it's with relation to its history, yep. uh, which of course then goes back to, to, to Britain and, and yep. British colonialism. Can you, can you, can you do that in, in a few minutes? Yeah, yeah indeed, indeed. indeed. That, 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 that's, that's actually, that's actually part of, um, part of the findings that, that, that I, that I made, you know, and um, it deals here, uh, this year specifically, with the context of how Christianity was founded. Sierra Leone, as you rightly pointed, was a British colony. A British colony founded basically to rid London of the problem of black people. But this is this is this is the point. In the 1700s, you know, James Somerset, the slave, ended up in a London court because he ran away from his Boston owner, and the, the Boston owner wanted to capture him back and send him back to the plantations and so on. But uh, people who are connected to the Clapham sect. You know, those who are British evangelical abolitionists, Grab and Sharp and so on, they gathered together, brought this matter in front of the judge in London to say, if somebody comes to London, fleeing from slavery, they cannot be captured and sent back to the slave plantations. Lord Mansfield ruled in 1771 that, in fact, slavery was not part of English law. And this open opened the door for many more slaves to escape the plantations in the U.S. And of course, again, after the American War of Independence, and they came to London, but it created a problem for the blacks, and they needed a place where they can integrate. The British government, under the recommendation of a botanist, found that Sierra Leone had a natural arbor in West Africa. It could take over these Africans. So it, they were sent there back in 1772, 1772, you know. So this place was founded, the province of freedom, um, later on called Freetown. That is the name of the capital. It was founded for free slaves. But the slaves came already having exposed themselves to Christianity. So they came there, they sang that this was a liberation for them. They founded the churches and so on, but they were supported by the Church Missionary Society, CMS, who founded um, you know, big churches, Fural Bay College, 1827, secondary schools and so on, you know, education, uh, hospitals and things like that. So Sierra Leone, in fact, according to Roger Olsen, one of the historians, he says Sierra Leone was the first Protestant missionary field in tropical Africa, apart from Southern Africa, because there already from 1772, missionaries landed in Freetown. Mm. And there the church started. But interestingly, Christianity was basically confined amongst the liberated African slaves. 
The slaves who were brought, they were the Christians. They did not care to evangelize those in the interior. They did not care to share them, to share with them the gospel and so on. So this provided, although Sahelin had the kind of 200 year of missionary history, yet it provided an, a problem because it did not offer a Christianity to the indigenous people. Now, fast forward to my time of my study, uh, let's say up to 1980, this was when I, uh, I, I started my own studies, where the Pentecostalism story co connects. By that time, 1980, Zerlin was already independent. The denominations that were connected to missionary organizations, the Anglicans, the Methodists, the Wesleyans from America, and so on, they had their churches, their schools, primary, secondary schools, and other institutions. They were implementing religious activities for young people, so youth camps during the summer. And they were teaching them to appreciate the Bible, to encounter scripture from a revivalist point of view. But when these guys went back, they could not encounter the same revivalist uh, tendencies they had learned in school and in the camps, in their various churches. So by the 1980s, they started to move and they started to found their own independent denominations. Of course, this was helped by other Pentecostal missionaries, particularly the AOG, that already started working in Zerlin around the late 50s and early 60s, you know, and other movements, later movements, that really uh, helped to Couliers. So what we have today, what we have from them was the formation of independent Pentecostal charismatic churches from the 1980s onwards, but also we had an, an effect of Pentecostalism in the mainline churches. So Anglicans, Methodists, Baptists, and so on, they also began to adopt Pentecostal tendencies. They also began to organize all-night prayers. They also began to organize deliverance sessions. They began to shout hallelujah in the preaching. They do praise and worship. So they still maintain their traditional names. They still have an affiliation with uh, British denominations and so on, Methodists, Anglicans, and so on but they have been affected by the Pentecostal fire, you know. But that was not my own research. My research was basically about the movement itself, the Pentecostal movement, independent of the mainline denominations and how they were successful, why they were successful, and what did they do, you know. So, so here, here, I will just point out to three, sort of three implications um, that my study really provided, one of which... I've already mentioned it, but this is the, 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 the effect on African church historiography. If we look at Sierra Leone, for instance, like I've said, mainly the story of the church is told from the perspective of the mainline denominations, the mainline missionary organizations. Missionaries came, they planted the church, the church grew. Well, this is true, but partly true. Let's put it like that. It was, in fact, Africans who were repatriated to Sierra Leone, who founded the churches. But of course, they worked in collaboration with the missionaries. The missionaries provided the educational tools and so on. But African, the African agency is often minimized. And of course, you are aware of somebody like Samuel Ajay Crowder, the first black bishop who was trained at Fulabi College but served in Sierra Leone before going to Nigeria. There's also another popular guy called Holy James Johnson, you know, he was also trained from Sierra Leone, a liberated African, trained in Sierra Leone at grammar school and went to Furabe, became a missionary, also served in Ghana, in Nigeria, and uh, also Gambia. So the, 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 my study pinpointed the fact that, yes, there is a missionary factor in the founding of Christianity, but this should not this should not exclude the African agency. And these charismatic Pentecostal churches founded from the 1980s are founded by Sierra Leoneans themselves, independent of um, any external influence. So this was a very uh, serious con um, consequence of my study. The second one, of course, it is also the question of this Pentecostal scholarship in West Africa. You, you would agree with me that when African Pentecostalism is discussed, your home country of Malawi, my home country of Sierra Leone, does not feature prominently. There's only, there's only Nigeria, there's only Ghana, there's only Kenya, there's only South Africa. These are the names that feature prominently as if these guys determine what African Pentecostalism is. Well, I am not here to say that this is wrong. This is good because, I mean, you have a lot more people in Nigeria than in Sierra Leone. We're only 7 million. Nigeria, 130 million or even more. more. 
But I think that Pentecostal scholarship in Africa, in order for, for it to represent exactly what Pentecostalism from an African perspective is, the voices, the dominant voices of Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, South Africa, those voices need to also dialogue with minority voices, voices from Sierra Leone, voices from other countries that may not have the population, but that may also have evidence of the presence of African Pentecostalism that is changing the context of African Christianity generally. You know, so this was this was one of the one of the things I, I engaged with, and this was one of the consequences. And of course, the, the last one for which I'm now working here in Lowen is Pentecostalism and its relationship to the African diaspora. You know, most of the African diaspora you meet in, in the West, in Europe, or in the East, in Asia, and so on, the likely possibility is that they are members of an African Pentecostal church. And this is, this is a replica of what is happening from the home continent. So if somebody is a member of uh, Pastor uh, Alf Lukau's church in Hallelujah International in Johannesburg, and they are now living in uh, Manila in, in Philippines, they may likely come together and form a church that reflects what goes on there. You know, so there is there is an effect, there is an impact, um, there is an impact. Pentecostalism, African Pentecostalism has been exported naturally amongst the African diaspora, and they are using those thought forms to really help them to adapt to the changing situation and integrate in the countries where they are. So if I if I put it in this context, then it, 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 it was because of my sort of dissatisfaction with how African church history, Sierra Leone church history has been told. This is why I engage in the story to prove that, yes, the missionaries did their work, but there was an African agent. And that African church historiography should pay attention to this. You know, and of course, this leads me to West African scholarship on African Pentecostalism and then its influence amongst the African diaspora. Yeah, uh, you you have you have raised quite a few issues there. Yep. Uh, let me try and unpack them <laughs> one by one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the writing of the story of African Pentecostalism. Yep. Uh, and and the focus on Ghana, Nigeria, yep. Kenya, and South Africa. I mean, that's yep. a very fair statement to make. But on, on on the other hand, I, I and I don't know how to redeem this. But I look for materials on on Malawian Pentecostalism written by Malawians. Yeah. I can't really find any. Yeah. Right, and and these are my people. I I know them. They are my friends. But they're not writing. Right, uh, Zambia. It's, it's our neighbor. I've been there a lot of times, and, and and I know part of their Pentecostal scene. But they're not writing. Yeah. How 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 do we help our people tell their story uh, by encouraging them to write? How how can we do that? Well, of course, this is a very serious question. You know, I mean, that you've raised. Uh, well, the two things. One. The perception of Pentecostalism, the perception of African Christianity generally, I think that this this is uh, this is one of the things that we need to. Sorry, my phone was ringing. That's I wasn't paying attention to who is there. <laughs> yep. So, so I think that the way the story of African Christianity has been written um, affects the way African Christians themselves think about their faith and write about it. You mentioned examples. You would not be surprised that, in fact, the, the books that dominate, the, the books on African Pentecostalism from Africa that dominate are written by Western scholars. I mean, I don't have time to name them, but I'm sure you're aware of these ones. They are Western you, scholars. Before you finish that one, let me yeah. tell you something. Uh, <laughs> a friend of mine here in the UK just wrote a book about uh, Nigerian Pentecostalism. Yeah. Um, a white British friend. Yep. Teaching in London. Uh, the book came out just two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. It costs 120 pounds mm-hmm. here in the UK. Yeah. My Nigerian students here in the UK cannot afford the book. At all. But that book cannot be sold in Nigeria. Who is going to pay 120 pounds for, yep. for a book in Nigeria? Right? Um, mm-hmm. 
And so it becomes a book about Nigerian Christianity mm-hmm. that Nigerian Christians will not read at all. Yeah. All right. And and that's that's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is that is the that is the downside of academia. Academia we are we have to contend with, you know, we have to contend with this again and again. Books are written by academic scholars uh, from the West, uh, prized at a very expensive um, um, cost that even African libraries would not be able to access it. But it is about Africa, and this becomes a dominant narrative. And I think that the few of us who are uh, working in Western universities, we need to uh, speak a bit louder. We need to raise our voice, not not so much that we... We, 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 we argue against what is being done, but we raise our voice to allow the African voice to be present when issues of African Christianity are discussed. So this, this, this is one of the ways. The second way you mentioned is really the question of um, um, helping our African counterparts to really write, to write things. I, I have the same frustration, you know, when I think of Sierra Leone. I mean, we have minds, we have produced scholars Highly placed scholars, some of whom have impacted me personally, but all of us are based outside there. We try to inspire the guys on the ground. They don't find it interesting to write. So when they do at all, this is this needs serious editing and so on and so forth. So I think that the African church, the African church generally, African Christians and African Pentecostalism needs to really grapple with its own context from an intercultural perspective, reflect as Africans and think about what we do and write it down. By writing it, we provide an opportunity for people outside of our circles to be able to understand what goes on in our minds and how this relates to the faith. Because at the end of the day, theology is a response, is, is a response of humanity to God in the context where they are. And those who respond to God in an African context must be allowed from an intercultural theological perspective to contribute to a discourse describing what they do. This, this of course, I, I'm sure internally, internally, we need an external guide to be able to help us to see our rough edges, but we have a voice. We are the object, the subject of study, and the subject of study must contribute into, into, into this discourse. And this is why I think people like Okukalu and so on, you know, they have done us a favor to really set the, the pace. And we are working on their laurels and trying to build up um, um, what they have um, um, achieved. Sure. That's great. Um, you have also said something that, that I think needs to be sort of emphasized. Yep. It's the impact of the Pentecostal charismatic movement on mainline churches, mainline yep. denominations in the continent. Can can you say something more about this? Sure. There's one scholar, there's one Ghanaian scholar who have actually written a book, Cephas Omenio. It is called Pentecost outside of Pentecostalism. So he basically studied the influence of Pentecostalism on Ghanaian mainline churches, so Protestant, Methodist, Anglicans, and so on. How has Pentecostalism influenced um, their the, 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 the churches, the theologies, and so on. I think that this is an interesting study, which provides an opportunity for us, for our students, to really reflect upon it. You know, whilst much of what is said about Pentecostalism appears to be on the negative side, what is happening within mainline denominations is also Pentecostalism. In fact, it is even much more Pentecostal than it it, it, it appears on the on the surface. But this is not spoken of. Because, yeah, we are Methodists, we are Anglicans, we are Baptists, we are Wesleyans, we are Mennonites, we are Lutherans, we are Calvinists, and so on. These titles take preeminence over issues that have to do with revival. But I think that for African Christianity, there is a connection, not just um, in terms of our intellect, what we think. Faith is not just basically reflection. Faith also has an affective aspect of it. It is what we practice, what we experience, how we live out our faith. And the the reason why I think Pentecostalism has influenced mainline denominations is the fact that the the churches themselves are beginning to be much more open to the movement of the Holy Spirit, to issues of healing, to issues of power, to issues of culture in ways that 
the missionary background of these churches did not do. And in this sense, if we begin to analyze it properly, we will see that a shift may be taking place. You know, it may take some time before those denominations become fully Pentecostalized, but they are doing issues like this. I mean, I can tell you for free that, for instance, St. George's Cathedral in Freetown, the, the main church of the Anglican, uh, Anglican denomination in Sierra Leone, now have a, sec- a segment of the worship service, the liturgy, called praise and worship. And there you have people playing seven drums, people praying on the, the, the acoustic and the synthesizer, the accordion and so on, with the clergy, the dean of the cathedral, fully dressed with a cup on top and so on, but dancing for 15 to 20 minutes. And this happens in all the other major denominations. But yet it's still not Pentecostal. It's basically a renewal of the worship. But for me as a Pentecostal scholar, these are issues that we need to point to. That Pentecostalism is influencing the way mainline denominations do church and how this affects uh, every one of us. And now we have this African Pentecostalism. This yep. This African type of Pentecostalism that's yep. finding its way to, to, to Belgium and to Britain and to Germany. Yep. Um, how is it looking there? What's the reception like? What, what, what are the Europeans thinking and saying about African Pentecostalism? Especially when it's there amidst. Yeah, yeah. This is this is this is basically why I'm employed here <laughs> to try to correct it, to correct the perception that they have. But basically, it's it's a very negative perception, I would say. It's it's a it's one that is full of noise, one that is full of fake healings, one that is full of fake miracles, and so on and so forth. It never actually shows the resilient part of African Pentecostalism in the West. By that I mean how the churches help people to adapt, to integrate, to survive the stress of displacement and the rigors of migration. It doesn't really address it, but this is what we do, you know. So I think I think that scholars, both African scholars themselves, as well as European scholars, mainly before now, mainly from the social sciences, so anthropology, sociology, and so on, migration studies, they have spent enough time to analyze how these religious movements really help Africans integrate. And some of the fact, some of the findings have affected public policy, you know, to, to a point that, you know, when somebody needs integration and so on, people in faith communities can be called together and they can give an opinion in terms of what needs to be done and how this is to be to be addressed. But of course, the, 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 the context of each of these countries determines how religion plays in the public sphere. For instance, in France, you have the laïcité. That means religion is not part of public life. This is you view your religion, and that is it. In the Netherlands, religion is recognized, but it doesn't have any impact on public life also, but in a different circumstance. You still have the state church, the Protestant church in the Netherlands. That is if you're in the northern part, and then you have the Catholic church in the southern part. The same is true in Belgium. Religion does not play a role, but the state recognizes Roman Catholicism as the state religion, and Methodist, uh, Anglicanism, and other faiths are recognized. So you, you find that in each of these circumstances, African Pentecostal leaders are to be aware of how to adapt, to how to access those leads so that their voices could become heard in the, in the um, societies in which they live. You know, I think some, of, some, some are not able to do that. Some are still struggling. They are opposing every you know, public policy and so on that is implemented by the state, but they're not accessing the, the means by which the state has set up to dialogue with religions. So we need to do so. In Germany, in Germany, of course, Germany has its own states and so on, but Lutheranism is the state religion in some of the states. And there, they even have a department for migrant churches. They employ Africans, they employ others who are working in these areas. So I think that I think that across Europe, I've only given four examples. So Germany, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. You know, in others, it may be different, totally. Of course, in the UK, where you are, it's also a different story. But I think African migrants themselves need to be aware of how to access these leads so that their presence can become official, and then they can make an impact slowly on society where they live. Because it's Africans have not come to go back tomorrow, you know. They have come to stay, so they need to adapt to the secular context by the end. Let me ask you the the missions question. 
Yes. <laughs> How are African Pentecostals evangelizing Europeans? Is that happening? That, that is a very, a very good question, uh, Prof. <laughs> um, uh, I'm sure part of your academic life was spent on re researching this question as to whether the reverse mission, as we know it, is possible. <laughs> you know, well, I will say this. I think that uh, there, has to be, there has to be critical reflection on the part of us as Africans if we want to engage um, a secular Europe with the gospel. There has to be a critical reflection. Critical reflection in various ways. First of all, to really be able to define who we are. Many of my African Pentecostal colleagues in Belgium are not able to even, well, I may be wrong, but <laughs> I find that they, they find it difficult to, to construct their identity in a way that does not offend others. Okay. I, will tell, I will tell somebody, I will tell somebody that I believe in Jesus Christ. And they will say to me, Jesus is nonsense. There's nothing like Jesus. He did not exist and so on. But I will still respond to him in a way that does not make him annoyed or make me angry. Yeah. In other words, I allow myself to be challenged by a non-believing context so that I am able to present the gospel to them. This is, uh, this is on, on, on a very academic level, but on a very practical level, you know, the, the methods of evangelism that are common in Malawi, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, they're not, they don't work here. You cannot just go to the main streets, put a loudspeaker and begin to speak loud and, and say you have to repent and so on. You cannot just go and say, these methods do not work. There has to be alternative ways of presenting the gospel. And this would be friendship evangelism, a very simple method that we all know of, friendship evangelism. How, how are we known by our neighbors? Do they respect us? Do they engage with us? Do we have any contacts? Do, we, do you accompany your children to the playground when they're going for football? Do you talk to the parents when you meet them there? You know, what are the openings that you use to be able to present the gospel? Also, in terms of the church itself, when the church is organized, do you invite people to a church where everything you give them is basically African? Do you make the service a bit more open? Do you, do you work on the noise levels? Do you work on the preaching? Is, it, is everything demonic? You know, do you have to cast and bind demons in, from the beginning of the service to the end? All of these things scare them away. So I, I believe that, in, in a sense, the practical theological aspect of our worship services, they need to address the context in which we are in order for us to be able to, to, to administer to the needs of West Europeans. So I would say, at now, I don't think that we are making any mark. We're not making progress. We're trying, but we're not making the, the desired progress that we need. We need to be able to work on it. And, and lastly, I will point here that African migrants need to, develop, to work on their children, to, to be able to help them to be sufficiently at home in the faith so that this, these little ones begin to talk to their friends in schools or at universities, and their friends will be excited to visit our churches. And when they do come to our churches, the churches, the services should not cease to be African, but they should be open enough to allow alternative views to be present. So this is the range of options that I may present sure, here. Sure. And there's a question that I, I can't help but ask. <laughs> Are the Africans in Belgium working together, as in Zimbabweans and Sierra Leoneans and, and, and Congolese and, and Nigerians and Kenyans, are, are, they, are they working together uh, or are they all operating in their own small circles? Yeah, I don't, think that, I don't think that we are able to work together, partly because of the colonial legacies that we have had, the language barriers, you know, French and English and so on but also the ethnicities. People prefer to deal more with their ethnic groups um, than others and so on. But there, there may be more. <laughs> there may be more. For instance, I would think that some people are basically afraid to have an ecumenism, an African ecumenism, which draws upon our Ubuntu philosophy uh, because they're afraid of losing their members. You know, ship stealing is, is, is a big problem. If, I, if, my church has, if my church has only 17 adults, 10 of whom pay their tithes regularly through which we are able to pay the bills of the church, to, you know, and so on and so forth. I would be very hesitant to expose them to alternative thinking and that may likely lead them away. So 
I don't think that there is there is a kind of cooperation. There are several there are several initiatives uh, that have been launched in Belgium to bring African churches together. For instance, the most the most recent one is called the African Caribbean Pastors Association. You know, African Caribbean Pastors Association. It's an association that, as the name suggests, that brings together pastors of African descent and Caribbean descent them together so that they can seek issues of common interest, encourage one another, and so on and so forth. But of course, I, I'm sure this is true also for, for the UK. Let me say 90% of the members of that organization are basically from Nigeria. And so automatically, when a Congolese walks in, when a Sierra Leonean like myself are walk into that circumstance, I am immediately suspicious of the Nigerian domination and the direction that this thing takes. You know, so for me, I, I think that I think that the 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 organization itself is is really it would be good for us to be together. It would be good for us to really work work out things. But there are other difficulties that we have to deal with, and um, unless we deal with those issues. I think the African Ubuntu, which is represented in our African ecumenism, would not really yield the, the, the results that are supposed to be yielded here. All right, okay. Thank you. I'm trying to land this now. Yes. <laughs> the generation of African Christians coming behind us, so to speak. Yep. Um, and and their... Um, Exposure to theological education. Yep. Um, would Would you have a word or two to just share yeah. with them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that first of all, they need to have they need to have a good grasp of what they want to do. Sure. In other words, uh, if if you're interested in to specialize in the New Testament, it has to be clarified from the very beginning that I'm going to be a New Testament scholar who specializes in um, the, the 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 pastoral epistles, you know, so Timothy and Titus, etc. They have to have that clear mindset. And like you like you've suggested, I think that our African preparation, theological preparation, or university preparation does not really work on students at the undergraduate level to prepare them for a, a specific vocation. Some of them will still have, for instance, when they send in their applications at the master program that you organize, or even here, and then you ask them, so what is your topic? What do you want to do? What is your research question? And things like that. It is not very clear. It's not often clear. So they need to have a good grasp of what they do. And I think that in terms of our engagements, we need to really push them to get to that point where they say, I want to specialize in New Testament with this, these, these things. Second, I would suggest, they need to look for uh, sympathetic professors. Let's put it like that. You and I, in the context of um, George Floyd, know that sometimes the guiding professor, your life pretty much depends upon him <laughs> or her. Sure. And if he or she is not the sympathetic guy, you will be ruined forever. You really end up having a kind of damage in your professional academic career. Sure. So they need to look for a sympathetic professor. A sympathetic professor in the sense, not that they, they agree with everything they say, but that they find room within their theological systems to fit you in and to help you define who you are in that particular context. So a grasp of what they want to do, a good guiding professor. And a third thing I would suggest, we also need to have this uh, next generation of African scholars to really be willing to do what I call theological ecumenism. I will try to explain it, <laughs> what I mean by this, by this view, theological ecumenism. I mean here that they need to be willing to cross from their own theological formations and background. If you have, if you have had training from a Methodist um, theological institute or a Pentecostal theological institute or a Baptist theological institute, and you come over to Europe to study theology or to, to the US or to Australia or, or to the West generally, be aware that your theological thinking, the presuppositions that you have would be tested. They would be questioned. They will be you will be tested in a very rigorous way. So when they come over here, they should not expect the kind of Christian theological training where the professor begins a class in, in pastoral theology with prayer. They don't even pray sometimes in these academic institutes, you know. So they have to be willing to engage in theological ecumenism, cross over the aisle from their own 
theologies to somebody else, dialogue, encounter theological positions that are different, even if they don't agree with it. They need to allow themselves to engage with it. And this will help us. This will help us in terms of our reflection. It will open doors and it will allow us to go to places we would never thought of think of going, you know. So these are my sort of suggestions uh, for upcoming African scholars. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And and finally, um, if somebody asked you to point them to three African theologians, uh, maybe those that have helped shape you, maybe yeah. those that you find interesting and and would need to the world to be aware of. What three names would you mention? I think, Prof, this is one of the most difficult ones you've given me. <laughs> because where do I go? <laughs> what, what, what names do I give? You, you, you don't want me to be in trouble with some of them who are alive, <laughs> who may listen to this broadcast. <laughs> but anyway, I'll try my best. <laughs> I'll try my best. I, I, would, I would sort of put it in, in, in three ways normally, using the three, the three you have requested. I want to begin with Edward Fasciale Luke. Edward Fasciale Luke. Sure. And he, uh, not, not because he was from Sierra Leone, but because of the contribution he made in the 1960s, 1970s, when the definition of African theology, along with Mbiti and others, was developing. Yeah? So Edward Fasciale Luke studied at Frobe College. He was a churchman, um, but he was dean of the Faculty of Arts and Professor of Theology. And there he contributed an understanding of the definition of African theology. He says, our understanding of African theology or our understanding of theology generally in Africa has to be redeemed from the Western uh, regalia that it was handed down to us in order for it to make sense to the context in which we practice it. So I think Edward Fashul, you provided for me an opportunity to reflect theologically as an African, as a Christian, as a contextual theologian, what is it that faith does to me? So he would be one. A second name, a second, of course, this Edward Fashul, sort of represents the, the family of scholars behind him. So Kwame Bidiako, John Mbiti, and so on. All of those, sure. Peter Betek, um, Butulezi, all of those guys who contributed to the development of African theology, you know. The second, second name I would mention, uh, and this also affects uh, what is going on now, is the name Bian Henry Kato. Bian Henry Kato. Of course, he, he is called the father of African evangelicalism. And this is, this is for very good reasons, because in the 1970s, also when he was writing, Africa had the problem of whether the Christianity that was developing was a Christopaganism or a biblical Christianity. So he called on the African church to do theology that takes the biblical text for what it is as the final revelation of God's word, which applies to the context of Africa. And of course, we know that through his work, you know, the African, the Association of Evangelicals in Africa did not only found um, Next, which is now a university, but also FATEB in Central Africa, which was the graduate school for, which is still the graduate school for French-speaking Africans, you know. So he calls on the African church to think biblically. And if you think of the developments, both from Pentecostalism and other movements, the biblical depth of the African church is still something we would wish it would improve. And so I will refer to Bian Kato as one of them who inspires my thinking. And of course, since I am now working in the field of African Pentecostalism or the African expressions of Pentecostalism, here I, I hesitate to mention one name <laughs> because I would be in trouble with those who are still alive. You can mention <laughs> you know, several. But names like Obukana. <laughs> Yes, Okukalu, Lamin Sane, Matthews Odio, Alan Anderson, Kwame Bidiako, Jehu Hansil, Sefa Zomenio, Kwabena Asamuajidu, Titi Tenu, Masi Oduduye, you know, Esther Mombo. The names could go on. You know, all of these scholars, <laughs> as Africans, we need to read them. Not because we agree with what they do or what their theology is, but they are trailblazers. They did theology at a time when they had to fight to be present on the theological table. For us now, we are present on the theological table, but we are not using our presence in this table to impress upon our, our non-African colleagues what African theology should be like. 
So I, I think here, if we, if we identify an aspect of theology and focus on one of these scholars, then we will be able to be much more competent in our contributions to the discourse of African Christianity generally and African theology in particular. So these are, these are, I hope that I have not offended my colleagues, but anyway, of course, your name should have been mentioned, but you know. <laughs> that was a really good one. Um, yeah. You did yeah. well. <laughs> Anything else that you would want to share? Well, of course, I mean, I, I, like I said, like, uh, we have been in contact already with some initiatives that we are also trying to set up here. I hope that we would really promote our networking, you know, so that, you can be physically present on the site. I can also, at some point in time, be present somewhere else where you are. So that, we, you know, the more we are together, the more we begin to speak with that voice, the more I think our European colleagues will begin to understand that African Christianity is not the one that they inherited from, you know, the colonial past. It's, it's a post-colonial theological concept, you know. So I think that our collaboration should continue. And please, um, uh, I am open to you know participate in sessions like this, but also I hope you are too when we also think of setting them up and uh, welcoming your contribution towards it. So thank you again for giving me this opportunity to speak to you and to have this dialogue over the last couple of minutes. Thank really you. I appreciate this. Thank you so much.